Okay, guys, <laughs> welcome to my first ever episode of Citizens of the World. I'm Ella Thomas, and I'm, I'm currently 17 years old. I'm going to be a senior in high school, um, and I'm just really excited to have put in so much work to this project and finally put it out and accomplish my goal. I first just want to thank everyone who... Um, made this possible and even if you don't think you made it possible you probably did um, just to all the people who supported me throughout the way who kept asking questions who were curious um, to the people listening right now and who will continue to listen I really appreciate it and obviously to you know this batch of people that I interviewed thank you for giving me hours of your time and for being vulnerable and I feel like one of the big um, goals and themes in this podcast is that being vulnerable is truly beneficial. It truly is something that a lot of people can't do. Um, I myself struggle with it and it's something that really helps educate other people and creates relationships with people. So a little bit of background with this kind of branching off from that is that I'm a very worldly person. I love to travel. I love different cultures. I love different languages. And, you know, how I really feel that people can experience the world is, well, through experiences, but, um, you know, through others, if not your own. And these, these people have really exemplified the traits that I'm trying to pursue, which is how they truly feel different or more experienced in my words as an American by being a foreigner, by being a citizen of the world, not just uh, one country. Um, so that's whether they've immigrated from another country, they've traveled the world for an extensive period of time, or they've just temporarily lived in another country. And truly believe that those, those values are really really important as an individual especially in today's society where we are kind of aiming towards the more narrow-minded scale and hopefully this this project really allows people to to overcome the narrow-mindedness and experience an open-mindedness and see a new perspective and i really hope that the emotion that you can feel from people's voices and from people's accents is moving and telling because that is the whole point of this medium is that you hear people, you hear how they feel, how they're passionate about something. So again, welcome to my first ever episode of Citizens of the World where we will be exploring the world through the lens of a modern nomad. All right, let's get started. All right. Are we on? We're on. My gosh. All right. So it's, it's I'm... intimidating. It's true. Very. It's all right. I can handle this. All right. Um, so I'm Amanda Pierman. Um, I was Amanda Warner, um, but I married my high school sweetheart. And uh, I met him here at the Benjamin School. But uh, to get here... Uh, I came via boat and I have a kind of a strange way of getting to America. Um, so I was born and raised in England. Yes, I can and, tell. Yeah, <laughs> the accent gives it away. Um, uh, but I left when I was 11. 
and uh, my parents had a uh, a company that they sold and with that we then had the opportunity to go and do my dad's dream which was to sail around the world so uh, we were given the option to either go to boarding school or to go and live on the boat with them and we were like no no we'll come on the boat with you because we, we didn't like the idea of boarding school uh, I've got a sister so that's the we um, she's 18 months older than I and Samantha and so Samantha my mum my dad myself and my grandparents which is my dad's mum and dad gran and pop we all flew to New Zealand on December the 13th 1990 and we arrived December the 15th because it takes that long to get there and we arrived um, in Auckland and we arrived at our boat which was going to be our home for the next however long we didn't know how long we were going for it was an open-ended trip okay so um, scary it was it was it was intense but it was also quite fun um, we got on the boat and a few months later we had interviewed people in England to come and be our deckhands slash tutors and so we had found these young this young couple Janice and Graham who um, turned out to be lovely young couple and uh, they were teachers and they, what they taught mirrored each other so we would cover all of the subjects so Janice was art and um, humanities and Graham was science and English and com- and so combined they covered all the topics and before we left England they took Samantha and I to London to the big bookstore the big bookstore I remember this day it was gorgeous a huge huge bookstore on multiple levels and gave us the syllabuses for the exams that we were meant to take when we were 16 which are which are the GCSEs we were taking the international GCSEs so you GCSEs are um, what you have to take at 16 uh, in the UK you start studying for them at 14 and then at 16 two years later you take the exams based upon those exams you can then go into college where which is our um, A-levels for a 16 to 18 year olds and that's when you take your A-levels at 18 based upon the results of your A-levels you get a place into university or not so you don't know if you're going to university until your a-level results come out to make sure that you've made the grades that they're requiring and i mean i'm aware that the education system is way ahead of america's there but well yes and no okay i actually find it very different so england is really specialized at a very young age so at the age of um 14 you really have to decide were you going to go and become a doctor are you going to go into law Are you interested in languages? Are you interested in math? Because if you don't take math as a GCSE, or if you don't take all the sciences as GCSEs, you're not going to be able to take your A-levels as biology, chemistry, and math to go into medicine. Or if you don't take at 14 geography, politics, political science, English, you're not going to be a lawyer because that's the route that you kind of have to pay for yourself. That's so so early. You really have to be early. And then you're really specialized. So for the 14-year-olds, you have to take seven subjects. Um, And that's where you get your exams in. And then for A-levels, now I think it's four is normal but typically it used to be three subjects so you would take whichever three subjects you wanted sometimes you can have a fourth if you're really a brainiac um but it really means that you have to specialize early and yeah. that that 
well. That's why I like the American system is you can have breadth and you can open up your ideas and opportunities and you can try all sorts of things. It gives And your you brain's a little more developed before you make a decision. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I agree. So, um, so Janice and Graham took us to London with a syllabus and said, okay, we've got to find books that match this so that you can, we can then teach you from these books to cover the syllabus. And so we got to New Zealand, we had our books, we had the syllabus and we all set sail and there was 12 of us on board at the time because we had another family of four who had two small children, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. I was 11, Samantha was 13. Um, my grandparents and my parents and Janice and Graham and then um, Chris and Mary. So there was 12 of us on board this boat and uh, within a couple of months uh, Janice developed a kidney problem and determined that she needed to leave. So we had tutors on board for just a couple of months and then they needed to leave. So Samantha and I were like, um, what do we do? So mum and dad said, well, it's on you. Here's the syllabus, here are the books, figure out what you need to learn and teach yourself. And so we did lessons from six in the morning till 10 in the morning every day. Um, And then once we did our, our academic work, and we could choose what we wanted to teach ourselves. Funny story. I uh, had taught myself French, and then I started teaching myself biology, and I was teaching myself about how proteins denature, but I hadn't read it as that because I was still in French mode. So when I went back to um, boarding school for my ninth grade year, equivalent of, um, the biology teacher there said does anybody know what it means when a protein changes shape because of of temperature and I raised my hand so excited I was the only one she was like yes I was like it's denature she just fell off her stool laughing I had no oh, it because it was the French, French. pronunciation. oh that's really funny <laughs> so that's that was really my funny. my silliness that's what happens when you you teach yourself you don't have the out loud uh yeah I didn't think about that and I didn't have the feedback and so I was one from my French voice to my biology voice yeah. and it transferred over so it's denature no it's denature that's really so. fun. <laughs> uh question yeah. your parent were your parents very um keen on academic success or was it kind of a second hand to experiences or what was their viewpoint on school I mean I know that my parents have talked about you know traveling and doing education but some parents that's kind of unrealistic so what were your parents like that allowed them to give you that freedom so my mum originally was a school teacher. My mum was a biology school teacher oh. and, uh, until she had my sister. And so she and my dad had a very strong view on academics. And so they were the ones that said four hours every day. You can do it any time of the day, but if you do it between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m., the rest of the day is yours. So they were the ones that said, this is it. And they were always helpful and supportive. So if we had struggles, I remember a day when I struggled on teaching myself matrices in math why I remember this day I don't know but I remember going down into the captain into the um state quarters where my parents were into the back of the boat and said dad can you help me this is the math book this is it I don't get it and he hadn't done this since he was 11 um so he sat there and he dutifully read the book and then he started to explain it to me and the light bulb went on I was like okay I got it thanks um and so he was willing to help and so was um my mum um and if we really got stuck uh we got on the radio to all of the yacht 
Scotties that were around and said, did anybody know this concept? And there were other people that would then hop in and Oh help. my gosh, really? So it was a community thing. So oh, it didn't cool. happen too often, but um, <clears throat> yeah, we, we did have help if we needed it. Oh, that's cool. And then my parents had this view that, our main education was going to come from our experiences. Yeah. So one day we caught an enormous mahi-mahi, a dolphin fish. Um, our idea of fishing was to throw a thousand pound trawling lines out the back and just tow them. And if something hit on it, great. And this one day um, we caught this enormous mahi-mahi. Um, so it was an art project. First we drew it and then um, my mum's an incredible artist so she took over the lesson and she taught us how to draw and then um, we dissected it and the, we took it all apart and we made food and then it was a cooking lesson and it fed 12 of us for about four meals I and mean, it was an enormous fish and then we started dissecting eyeballs and my mum would show us how to dissect it and how to break it apart and how to draw it which is kind of why I do draw as you see do as you go because of what we were doing on the boat and so um she explained about all of things with the swim bladders and we just took this fish apart and then once we had it completely dissected we drew it again and so we had um we had all of these processes this one fish provided multiple lessons and multiple um foods as well and experiences um and then it's a good learning yeah it's really, absolutely yeah, so we learned experience. all the time um even though we didn't realize we were learning, we were learning. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it also... Well, that's the beauty of the experience is that it's it's fun, not yeah. along with, you know, just sitting in a classroom, but the yes. hands-on aspect of it. Absolutely. And a lot of it was learned through responsibility and um, freedom, which is kind of weird to say, but we were given the responsibility of everybody on the boat twice a day. My sister and I were given watches, uh, even at the age of 12. So <clears throat> I had turned 12 by then, uh, by the time we left. We were responsible for two hours a day, um, twice a day. So I was six to eight, um, morning and night, where I was responsible, I was the captain of the ship. And I was responsible for making sure the engines didn't overheat. I was responsible to make sure that we didn't see any other boats and crash into them. And it was my responsibility. And wow. it was really an important thing. Everybody else could go off, do, but I was the one on watch. And um, as we got older, our watches increased. And so then we had three hour watches. We never really went over four, um, but three hour watches. And um, then we could do whatever else we wanted in the meantime. But it was absolutely our responsibility. And even from the age of 12 years old, I found that kind of an incredible responsibility and freedom and just the fact that they trusted me so much. That was pretty impressive. And anytime we had any problems, uh, we could just call dad and he would shoot up and fix it. So we knew we had a support system, but we were the ones responsible for everything, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Um, and same with our education, we were the ones responsible for it. So much so that my sister, I'm gonna brag a little bit for a moment, my sister at the age of 14, 13, 14, when we were in Australia, <laughs> she um, took her international GCSEs at 14, all the ones who were meant to take at 16. Yeah, she did very well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so very young and all A's. And it was like, oh, okay then. Um, when we were in Australia, I'm going to have an aside moment, but when we were in Australia, my, my parents uh, were thinking about selling the boat. We had been gone for a year. And we had these people that were like, oh, we want to buy your boat. And um, my parents were like, oh, okay. Um, and so they put us in school. <clears throat> and they were waiting for the visas to come in, but the school said, no, you're welcome to come in. So we went in Australia, in, Australia, in Sydney. And they said, um, you're welcome to come while you're waiting for the visas and you can start the term with us. So we started at the International Grammar School, I believe it's called, um, in Sydney. And it was meant to be the best school in Sydney. We get there and we have a uniform and it was green and yellow. Oh my gosh, it was so gross. It was That's really bad. It was really bad. It was checkered green and yellow and it was like pukey green and pukey yellow. Okay. It was really grim. Um, really so we get there and we go into the class and they start trying to teach. And my sister and I were put in the same class for some reason. They tried to teach. It's math. And the teacher got it wrong. And my sister's like, that's not how you do it. And she got up, she erased the board and retaught it. So in the end, she started teaching the lessons because um, the teacher couldn't get it right. And so it was like, wait, Samantha, what was wrong with this? And so she'd come up and she'd fix it. And then um, we're like, um, why are we here at this school? And my sister was getting more and more annoyed because she was having to teach the class and then go home in the afternoon and study for her exams and yes. do her work. So she was just working constantly, but she's, she's like that, so she's good. <laughs> but um, Australia was really an interesting school. Um, we were there for six weeks minus two days. And, in that, and specifically, that, it was that long. Um, and I know that because it was... <laughs> It was awful. Um, the kids that attended the school, um, well, they would come to school high and nobody would care. And it was like, but this kid can't play softball. She's falling over. Oh, she's fine. Leave her be. I was like, oh my gosh, how can this happen? Wow. And it was really weird. And then they That's sat, a weird environment. It was. And, and then to back up on that, they sat down the whole of the school of us um, probably 13-year-olds up, 14-year-olds up, and said, you are not allowed to wear baseball caps any time with your uniform. So coming towards school or leaving school, because we had to take this, the underground, the trains to get to school. And it was like, you're not allowed to wear baseball caps. We've got reports of it. But if you're going to smoke, please make sure you do so outside the building. It was like, what? Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was the weirdest thing in the same meeting and I was like what is on with this place so no wow and it was that I mean not getting into that but is that just kind of normal there is it it's, a very lax it seemed area it, but I, I mean I have family in Sydney but I've never been no it eh. seems I don't know if it was just that school or just that mm, but it was meant to be the school and yeah we did not have a good experience so when we were told we didn't get our visas Samantha and I celebrated and we went back to the boat and did our own thing so why <laughs> um invasive question I guess but why didn't why were you denied visas you know I don't know okay I really don't know interesting that's I've not, I haven't heard of that in a while that's yeah. interesting. Maybe it's just population issue or something like that. I don't that. know. I, you know, I don't even know. I think it was to do with um, at the time we had people that were meant to buy the boat um, and...
and it was all through this one person who turned out to be psychologically unstable and they had imagined these people that were buying the boat and there was a whole yeah problem with that interesting yeah so I you think there was you have a little interesting that. Australia experience. Oh, we had a very interesting Australia experience. Yeah, that is interesting. So you said you got sent back to London, though, to boarding school yes. for ninth grade. Yes. So um, this was still I in Australia. We had to hunker down from the hurricanes because there's hurricane season down there. So we try not to be out in it, except for our first ever trip. From New Zealand to Tonga, we went directly through a Cap 3 hurricane, right in through your, the eye. In your boat. Our first, yes. Mm-hmm. Seven days of bucket day. Mm-hmm. Oh, my god! We went straight through the eye. And it was kind of in cool because when we hit the eye, it got su- uh, such be- beautiful blue sky. This Isn't that weird? So yes. calm. We all went outside, and then we saw this wall coming towards us, and was like, back inside, boom. And then the waves were huge. It was were crazy. You pre- were you, I mean, you scared for your life, or were you just kind of... No, I was just seasick. <sighs> I was just, I, I, well, I get seasick anyway, so I was seasick for three and a half years, so... Yay! Oh, wow. Oh, I can't imagine that. Wow. So, um, what, what was the reason of going through a hurricane? Were you well, just Well, we didn't know. Yeah. Well, at the time, back in 1991, we left... Um, we didn't really have the satellites that we have now. And so we thought it, we had all the weather reports had said, no, it was all fine. And then we got out there and no, within, within two days, we got clobbered by it. And, and what's bucket day mean? Uh, scooping bucket. Oh, vomiting. Vomiting You're not in a skip bucket. It, scooping the no. water out. No, no, no. It's all you had. We didn't eat for days because nobody could actually go down in the cabin to make food. Oh, I, I know what that mm-hmm. feels like. Yeah. But the day, oh, my mum went down and grabbed a handful of bread and some water. And it was the most delicious meal I'd ever had. Yes. And to this day, still remember it as yep. being the most delicious yep. thing I've ever Everyone eaten. has one of those. <laughs> and that's yours. And that's yours. That's yeah. so interesting. So, so after Australia, we left and we went backwards. And unfortunately, that meant that we were going against the tides and it meant that we were going against the wind. And our boat was 102 foot. Um, so it was a big sailboat yeah. and the waves were crashing over the top of the mast. Like this is a 160 foot mast. And we had two engines on, which would normally take us about 15 knots forward. We were doing two knots backwards. Yeah. Um, it was really bad weather but eventually we got to Vanuatu and it was wonderful to be there. What um, is that? Vanuatu so if Australia is like um, a hand yes. um, you from your thumb you go top right a little bit okay and um, Vanuatu was really kind of interesting uh, because uh, that's where we actually met cannibals uh, real life cannibals and oh. um, we yeah it, it was really an interesting phenomenon they still have cannibalism there and uh, we got a guide to take us to see the cannibals. And if we hadn't had this guide who spoke to them and said, oh, yes, da, 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 we would have been clubbed to death because um, there were two centurions that were standing out there with these great big jade clubs. And Oh, yeah. gosh, that gave me the goosebumps. <laughs> that really just gave me that. So what, what, who's like, let's go see the cannibals? Uh, well, that, that, <laughs> <laughs> it was all part of the day trip. It was great. Um, this was... Um, this was on an, I believe this was still on the island. So my mum, my dad and I, 
flew from the main island of Vanuatu. We took a little plane and literally it was a little plane um, at that the man that was sitting behind us had a machete in his hand. The people behind that had the chickens that were running up and down the aisle of this plane. And you get weighed yourself and your bags as you are to get on the plane to make sure it was enough weight. And you all have to look down at the runway to see if they had left your bags on the runway because you, you don't know if they're going to make it or not. So we go on this plane and it's a one single propeller plane and you, and it stinks to high heaven. Of, I'm sure it's all of, turbulency. Oh, it's awful, yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. And we land and the runway is a field and it's got a hill built in to make you slow down and the airport was a hut and it was an open hut not even had walls um and they spoke in um pigeon english yes um so um things like a piano was black keys white keys you hit and me sing that was the piano um glass keep your face dry is a snorkel and a mask and yeah it's interesting that uh pigeon is so spread out across the world like that yes it's in uh jamaica nigeria and now in australia really interesting Mm -hmm. they speak pigeon in a lot of places in the Caribbean, uh, Nigeria, it's really prominent. Wow. Especially in like that part of Africa. But I wonder how it spreads that far across. Yeah. It's really interesting. This, there was a sign up that said, um, basically translated to, don't go on this runway, uh, on this grass path, because you'll be hit by a plane and it's your fault. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you'll be the speed bump. Um, so we were met by a guide and he took us... <clears throat> drove us to the most accessible and live volcano in the world and then we walked up the rest of the side of the volcano and we stood at the top of the crater and we looked down into the volcano as it's erupting and you can see it bubbling away and the gases were just horrendous so I had a chemistry lesson at the top and talking about (laughs) uh, all of the gases and what it does to your lungs and so so like you can see how you can get lessons all along and then he took us the guide took us to the village um, where um, we met the cannibals and they allowed us to go in and sit with them and talk to them and um, what amazed me was <clears throat> they were all naked they, they, a couple of them had loincloths on but what, what amazed me was the children their legs were really bowed and they had really big descended bellies but they were the happiest kids that you'd see they're just so happy but they weren't getting the nutritional values that they needed and so you could see these vitamin deficiencies that were there it was amazing so we had a medical lesson in the village so we had a discussion about it afterwards and um we had lots of things like that um where we were in a um tiny tiny island in Tonga and one of our first stops um and they hadn't actually seen white people there are some kids that had never seen white people before and we were all really pasty pale white British people (laughs) so we were like halo we're white and they kept coming up to us and stroking us because they couldn't understand why we looked very different I can't imagine that and it was really kind of crazy um they were the ones with three-legged pigs so that the pigs wouldn't run away um, they would cut one leg off as piglets. <laughs> um, they, um, but there was a woman on the island who suffered from water retention in her ankles, just like my grandfather did. And my grandfather had left by this time. So mum did a bit of a medical evaluation and then gave some of the medicine to her. And they were so appreciative. They kept giving us all of their fruits and yams and um, baskets and things. And it was really sweet. 
Um, but we had these group of people that came over to the boat. They, we invited them on the boat, and they'd never seen themselves. Um, so they hadn't seen pictures. You no, know, I always wonder that. Like, yeah. imagine, you know, no mirrors or glass. You you don't know what you, I've always imagined yeah. that. So that's very interesting. So when they saw pictures of themselves, and we actually took little videos and we played it back to them, they couldn't understand it. They this it just blew their mind. And we put on, we had- So primitive. Yeah, oh, it was so primitive. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah. And they ha- we had a video of um, Queen live in concert, of Freddie Mercury singing, and we put it on, and they were looking, and they couldn't, under- and they kept tapping the tele, they, they couldn't get their head around it. It would, I don't know if we actually did a detriment to them that day. I can't imagine that. Yeah. That's so new to me, especially yeah. the cannibalism yeah. aspect of it. That is, <laughs> gave me goosebumps. But, uh, I mean, wow, that's that's a lesson in itself that stuff like that exists. Yes, it does. And that you saw it. Yeah. And that, I mean, I applaud your parents for letting you see stuff like that because it's that's valuable yes it yeah. was very valuable and it was nice that we actually had conversations about it and um my parents actually encouraged us to share the news so we were encouraged to write newsletters um and send them back to our friends and um just put all of this stuff in and then when we went back to england on a holiday um we went back to our primary school um and we gave a presentation on it and so it was nice to share our wealth of knowledge and experiences with them but you could see that they just didn't quite understand and we were trying to explain and they're like you're crazy wow. <laughs> okay. wow. um, one of the other differences that I think I should mention is in Samoa Samoa is made up of two islands Western Samoa and American Samoa um, American Samoa is a protectorate of America Western Samoa is an incredibly beautiful country. It is green, it's luscious. Robert Louis Stevenson's buried there right on top of a mountain. We climbed up to see, and it's absolutely idyllic. American Samoa, under the American influence, is not. It is gray, dingy, and full of animosity. And it's really interesting to see. So the Western Samoan people, and they're the same people, they're the same country. How far are these islands apart from each other? One day sail. Um, uh, Western Samoa was absolutely incredible. But when we got to American Samoa, they have a tuna canning factory um, there, chicken of the sea. They um, they, uh, can all of their tuna there. Um, we got a tour of it, which was amazing. But what was not amazing was they dump all of their bits into the harbour. And so the harbour that where you anchor in... I already know what you're going to say. ...is full of sharks. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have friends that were like, oh, no, I'll just swim and clean up the prop and clean the hull. And, yeah, they come up and nuzzle you, just check to see what you are. And then they swim off. And I was like, what? Oh, yeah, it's a hammerheads. And those are, yeah, they're fine. I was like, no, no. No, no, we're not going anywhere near that water. Thank you very much. But we got our first um, experience of real civilization in in a year um, in American Samoa. And we had a bowling alley, which was really fun. And um, it was dented wood. And you had to miss the dents. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) It might be why my bowling is so appalling. Um, But this, you didn't go out after dark because the youth kept getting all of the American um, television. And so they saw what it was like to be in America. 
and they couldn't gain access to it. And so they got really frustrated and angry and they wanted, but they couldn't have it. And it became incredibly materialistic. And as a result, the culture shifted and it was no longer anything like Western Samoa. It was completely and utterly um, destroyed by materialism. It was incredible to see. Wow, that's really what, you know, the changing of the, that's a complete contrast yeah absolutely. which is interesting so western samoa is more uh primitive yes kind of like what you were explaining with the tonga is that yes. is it tonga mm-hmm. yeah so that wow that's very interesting yeah and I, you went to both and yeah we so. went to both islands and we spent time at both and um yeah people in american samoa were really grumpy and really frustrated because they could see all of the life for America because they had American television. So um, what is it's a territory? What is what is it? I think it's called a protectorate. Okay. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, I mean I can't imagine you you're labeled American yes. but you're really not. Exactly. Yeah, that that's very uh And then they twisted. had the clash of cultures. So they had their history of being Samoan, but then they had this push of, no, you're American, but not quite, and like, how do they fit in? And so the fact that they didn't know how to fit in was really quite psychologically detrimental for them and culturally devastating. And it was really hard for them to to see. And it was hard for us to witness, particularly coming from countries where they have so little and they're so, so happy. And yeah, it was, so it was pretty imres- impressive. Another great thing to see the yeah. contrast between uh, life with you know modern technology and mm-hmm. life without. Exactly. And exactly. Interesting how it's actually shifted in a negative way in American. School. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely. Very interesting. So that's really hung with me for a long, long time. That. Um, you don't have to have material things to be happy. And in fact, sometimes without having the material things, you're happier. Like when you give a kid um, a Christmas present and inside the box is this most amazing toy. Do you know what they play with? The cardboard box. And then you're like, oh, I should have just got you a cardboard box. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> interesting, interesting. That So when I was four years old, I'd come over to America to go to Disney World, uh, to Disney World, Disneyland, and we went to Dallas because my parents really liked the old 80s show, Dallas. And so we went to Dallas. Just pick the picket, just, you know. Uh, yep, so we went to see J.R. Ewing's ranch, and that was it. And we also went to the Grand Canyon, but I was four at the time, and I don't really remember much of it. And we came back uh, with the other set of grandparents when I was eight, and I remember that vividly. Um, and I always had such strong feelings about... Um, love and enjoyment with America. When I was four, I met my pen friend, Happy Moore. Her name was Happy. She changed her name from Elizabeth to Happy, H-A-P-P-I. Um, and uh, she would write everything uh, on smiley face paper, in circles. She was Good amazing. For her. <laughs> yeah, she would, like, I would sit there and read, turning this paper round and round and round until you get to the middle where it's signed Happy in the beautifully in the middle. And so I was her pen pal since I was about four years old. Uh, she contacted me and we were writing back and forth so I thought America was this land of love and this land of just amazingness and then when we got to American Samoa I was like 
wow, okay. And then the Vanuatu with the dumping and the wastefulness, I was like, ooh. And I started to get this tainted idea of what America was about. It had kind of like burst my bubble of what America was. I was still holding to the fact that this was the land of love. My pen friend was here, da, 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 da. But then I just felt like there was a lot of waste and there was a lot of affluence that was wasted. In Vanuatu, uh, we went uh, diving. and uh, Like scuba diving? Scuba diving. And it's called Million Dollar Point. It's probably worth a lot more than Million Dollar Point. This is a really interesting connection to America. So in the war, um, America had uh, lots of their big boats filled with tanks and whatever else to help fight the war. Yes, I believe so. Um, And... um, they, uh, after the war, they were going to sell it to the islands. Well, the islands didn't want it. Well, they didn't want to ship it back. And the islands were like, well, you could leave it here if you wanted. Well, they didn't want to just leave it for them. So they dumped it in the sea. And so you can go down about 60 feet down and you can sit in a Jeep and you can drive an American Jeep and you can sit and you can play on all of the uh, American tanks while you're scuba diving. And it's called Million Dollar Point because the Americans didn't want to ship it all back. So (laughs) they dumped it in the water. That's really funny. (laughs) And so you're like driving cars and while diving? Yeah. So... um, so I, it, everything was big and bold and grand and it was uh, I had my first Thanksgiving and we celebrated Thanksgiving oh, with right. some some friends um and uh then we sailed down the coast and then we sailed through um Mexico and through Puerto Vallarta down through Panama we went through the Panama Canal which oh, was cool. an incredible experience everyone says I need to do that the, the locks and yeah stuff. it's really, really cool really cool it is very cool and then we went back up to Florida and on the way, on the way, I don't know if I've ever told you this, on okay. the way, um, we spotted a boat. It was a 30 foot little boat that was stuck in the water. It was just this tiny little thing. It, its engines had stopped. And we had picked up at the time, somebody had spoken Spanish and he was talking and yelling back and forth at this boat and it turned out that they their engine had died and that they wanted us to tow them to Florida and we're like mm, no we can't do that we're still a couple you know hundreds of miles away and he was like well can you take our children and women and we'll pass them to you and you can take them on your boat and you can take them to shore and we're like uh uh-uh, no no so we passed them a rope and we towed them for a couple of hours while we called the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard came and picked them up. And later we got into Florida, into Fort Lauderdale. And later on the news, we found out that the boat that we rescued had 35 people on board that had escaped Cuba. Um, and so these were Cuban refugees that we had saved from drowning because their boat was sinking and it was, they, they, they sunk the boat and as soon as they got the, the people off it, they sunk it and we, yeah, we'd saved 30, 35 people wow. from Cuba. Yeah, that's which awesome. Is, but it made me think like, wow, we're going to America. These people are wait, like risking their entire lives to get to this promised land. And so I had such high hopes for America and I was so excited to get there. And it was beautiful, big and just bold and it was amazing. And now, mind you, I'm still living on a boat at the end of a dock. And But I still found that amazing and seeing all these big cars and um yeah it was it was phenomenal I was so excited by it and then I um 
I got into an argument with my parents and just because I was being a moody teenager said, fine, I don't want to live with you anymore. I want to go to boarding school. And that's how I got to boarding school with one uh. argument. And I was like, oh. Uh. So I <laughs> ended up in boarding school back in England because my sister had left by then. She had already been in England on her own um, since about 15 and she lived on her own and she was doing her A-levels, those big exams that you take at 18. She was doing at 15, um, because yeah, as you do. Um, and so they put me into a school in Peterborough, which was about an hour on the train from Cambridge, which was where my sister was. Um, and um, I went to boarding school there. And that was a different experience in itself. Um, and uh, then my parents were still here with the boat and they were trying to um, sell it because um, we were told that Florida was the place to sell the boat. Um, and my dad started, he's a big golfer. In England, we actually lived next to the golf course. And um, so uh, he would play golf all the time. And so in Florida, he started playing golf and he started talking to people. And he ended up talking to this one man who was on the board at the Benjamin School. And they said, oh, you've got a daughter, you should bring them to Benjamin. And that's how I got here from a game of golf. So from, I know, incredible, right? I'm not, I'm not surprised though. <laughs> Everyone plays golf. Exactly. So. Um, from boarding school I then got a student visa and I came over to America and um, even when you're under 18 or were you over 18? No, 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 I was uh, 14 at the time. You need a student visa. I had a student visa to come to America to, to to go here. So my parents had to apply for it. They had to provide that there was financials available for me to do this, that I'd have a place to live, um, so on and so forth. And then the school had to sponsor me effectively. The school had to sign off. And anytime I had to leave the country, I had to go to Mr. Keel, you know, the Keel campus. Mr. Keel was the headmaster at the time. Um, he would have to sign my paper to allow me to leave the country and to come back again. Wow. Um, so did you feel kind of a lack of freedom there? No, I felt privileged. Okay. I felt really, um, really lucky to come here. Um, Why did you want to leave England so bad? It was just the, the beauty of America or the idea of it? At the time, I didn't, I don't know. At the time, I was really torn uh, as to whether or not to stay in England or come back to America. Um, it was the first time in my life, really, that I'd been away from my parents for more than a day. For more than an hour, right. right? I'd live right. with them in one boat right. for 24 hours a day for three and a half years, and then to all of a sudden be in a different country, in a different continent, and not being able to speak to them when I wanted. I found that really difficult. So when I had the opportunity to come back to America, um, I came and um, I came to the school and I toured, and on the tour. Um, Jean-Marie Barrigo was my tour guide and and Jean-Marie Barrigo and she's the Valley Victorian of my class and her her children come to the Benjamin school too and her son is in my son's year I mean it was like it's all just there's so so many clicks there's it so it's great Um, and she took me on a tour and you know shadow day and she was taking a test in biology so she was like well why don't you go into the art room and that was the day I met my husband um, on my shadow. And I was watching him paint a silk painting of uh, a Native American um, image of this, the, uh, 
a scene um, of their teepees and uh, farmyard and everything, which is now hanging up in my house. I still have it. It's beautiful. <laughs> and um, because of my accent, uh, it was, I think, Sid Gowder's birthday. And everyone was like, say happy birthday. So I'm like, yeah, happy birthday. And I was this shy little girl from England. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And... Um, it was an interesting day, I remember. Because they that. wanted to hear you. Because they wanted to hear me say happy birthday, and they kept trying to get me to say different things. And um, yeah, it was fun. Um, and then I came to the school, and I didn't see Jason again until um, we were in band together, but we, we didn't really talk. He played drums, and I played flute. Until one day, we were waiting for band. He came over and asked me to give him some help with his Algebra 2 homework, which he'd already done. But it was his way to get me to <laughs> talk to him. And then and then we've been friends, and then he asked me to prom, and that's it. We've been dating ever since, and now we've been married. We'll be 21 years in August. Um, I'm just curious. Do you ever uh, sail anywhere besides, like, you, you did New Zealand and Australia. Mm-hmm. And... A little bit of Indonesia or no? So my parents uh, tried to sell the boat and okay. they didn't. And so they're like, well, we'll just go back to New Zealand then. So they went back via Cuba, um, the Panama Canal, and then they sailed it single-handedly, just the two of them. They sailed it around the world the other way, through the doldrums, through all of that. And wow. then I met them in French Polynesia. And so we did a few more islands, Nui, uh, French Polynesia. We went back to Tonga, which was really interesting because um five years later it had changed so much interesting and for the worse okay because um culture shift they now saw what other countries had and they wanted it and as a result it changed their dynamic and they weren't as happy they weren't as friendly and they had too much of an influence from the big westernized countries like australia and new zealand that were trying to help but in trying to help it made it worse but we did um both it was interesting both times that we were at Tonga I don't know why it happened but we got to feast with the king and because we were white and because we were on that boat uh, we got invited to the opening of the Wesleyan church this was when I was 11 uh, 12 and um, we got to go to the opening of this brand new church that they had and the king was enormous he was the biggest man physically height but he was as wide as he was tall he was like square he was enormous um because in New in tonga they have a different view of body shape the fatter and bigger you are the more beautiful you are because you have the ability to feed yourself and your family so they all wanted to be humongous and they were they were really really big big people um wow. but because um but because um, he was so big, the people were worried about his health. So he would go for a run every day. Well, the run consisted of, they would open the gates to his palace and he would get out the car with two walking sticks and he would shuffle about five paces and then he would sit down in his throne that these two bodyguards would carry behind him and he would sit there for 10 minutes then he would get up and he would do another five and then sit down again and by this time they had shut the roads down because they didn't want anybody on the roads with the king being around and so you couldn't 
move on this main highway road for about two hours while the king had his morning run. It's um, really funny. So then it's after really we funny. went and feasted with them, and it was amazing. And they, the Tongans, they um, put on a spread and a half. Anything that they could provide, they provided. And it was such a community that if you had a watermelon and they didn't have, you would share it. You would, it would be whatever's mine is everybody's. And it was such a communal feeling. And it was an honor for the villagers to have us come and sit with them, which I found really interesting and very like, uh, I found that really peculiar. What I, I've done nothing. Why am I being honored just because I'm what you look like? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And because I was the guest, I was like, that's really weird. I didn't like that. It's an eerie feeling. It's that definitely was very eerie. Really weird. Yeah. And so the second time when we came back, we were feasting with the king again. Um, I don't know why. There was a big celebration. I can't remember. And we were still invited to the feast. But it wasn't the same feeling. It wasn't the same, wow, you're revered guests because you're white. And it wasn't the same communal feeling of food being shared between everyone and anyone. There was still like humongous amounts of food, but it wasn't quite the same. And I think there was still so much of an influence from Western because there wasn't, I don't know. I actually have a similar experience to your Tonga experience. not really because I didn't see it, but it was just so, stuff like that is so, the pyramidal view is so interesting to me. So I was in Iceland last summer, as I think I told you. Yes, it was amazing and trip. And I took a ferry from one peninsula to the northern, northwest fjords. And the ferry brought like supplies to this island midway through the peninsula called Flati. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the island was probably as large as our school campus, like very small. And, um, you know, my dad had this friend in the peninsula that we were staying in before that he had met on a previous trip named Christian. And Christian's like, look, like, you're going to take this ferry, but don't get off at Flati. Like, just don't. And my dad's like, well, why? He goes, well, the people are, like, inbred. Oh! And he's like, I don't know... they come up to you and they touch you and it's weird and and my dad's like okay we won't you know we won't get off but I mean my brother and I are like looking out the window like trying to see all these people but it's just interesting because you don't I mean I've never seen someone like that so I can't imagine someone seeing another skin color right from you you know and that gave me again goosebumps because like it just reminds me of like such a closed off society and honestly they're happier like that which is just so interesting yeah yeah Absolutely. I, I think that, and I mean, same with Flati is like, they, they don't need to leave that island. They no. love it. Yeah. And that's how, the, that's their way of life. And yes. it's just, that's just so interesting. I know. Me. I know. Yeah. I often find that simple and stay put is wonderful. And yet here I am, the global person that's spread out that. <laughs> well, um, there's pluses and minuses yeah, to exactly. both, you know, but that's so interesting. So continue. Sorry. For it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking where I was going. Oh, I think we talked about... Oh, so my parents the went back time. to to um, New Zealand. Yes. And um, they we didn't really get into Indonesia. We were thinking of going. When we were traveling back, um, 
and ended up in America. We were thinking of going up through Jordan and up through um, the Mediterranean. Yeah, like the Middle East. Uh, however, we heard about the pirates and we did not want to deal with pirates, particularly with young children on board and elderly. My parents actually looked at a boat before they bought ours that um, the back was uh, reinforced metal for bulletproofing and that there was a machine gun that came up out of the deck because oh. um, it was designed for going into Indonesia uh, oh. for the pirates. And I was like, mm, no, thank you. Uh, yeah. I'll handle, um, you know, no pirates, no pirates for me. Wow. <laughs> just wow. just the, the imaginary ones that my dad used to find the treasure maps for yeah. and then make treasure hunts for us. But, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, so no, we didn't go into dangerous areas. It was just n- n- not not a thing. So um, after Florida, after um, high school, I went to England. I didn't want to go back to England, um, but my parents were adamant that I needed to go back to England to do my university um, because uh, they thought that I was going to be exposed in America to violence, um, to drive-by shootings, and it was too big. And uh, within the first month of getting to England, I saw more violence and, and I was, I'd been robbed and whatnot um, within a month than I had done ever in America. And I was like, um, I don't want to be here. And so I finished my university as quickly as I could and um, I hightailed it back to America. And the month that I graduated, I moved to America I got married in a different state and then moved back up to Ohio. And then my niece got a brain tumor and then 9-11 happened while she was still in the hospital. It was like baptism wow. by fire. It was wow. kind of crazy. <laughs> that is really, that's a, that's a, when it rains, it pours. Yes, wow. it did. And, but I was not deterred. It was, it was now my home. And as an Amer- as a, a British person coming into America on 9-11, one of the biggest things that struck me was the camaraderie, was was the, it didn't matter who we were, it didn't matter what we were, we were a complete melting pot and we all embraced each other and we were American. And that was the most uh, American I'd ever felt, even though I'd only been in the country a month. Mm. Um, It was just the coming together. It was just the coming together. Everybody had an American flag out. Everybody was nice to each other. Everybody was talking to each other. Like it was this whole unification of we are America and we are American and we are here to support each other. And it was an incredible feeling to see. Do you feel that England lacks that nationalism? Hmm, that's a good question. Because I don't, um, I don't really live too much in England. The only times I've got a snippet of my childhood, which I didn't really think about when you're 10, you don't really think about nationalism. Um, and when I was in college, but in college I was just pining to get back to America because again, my husband, my boyfriend at the time was, was here and I wanted to be back in this country. Um, but just seeing the um, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebration this past weekend, um, you could see the amount of pride and nationalism there is in there. And I, I am a royalist. I love the Queen. I think she's amazing. And I think that the whole royal family do a lot for this country, um, or um, for oh, that country. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm interested in that too. I love all the TV shows about it. Mm-hmm. And stuff. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So... Um, I think there is national pride, but I feel like it kind of gets diluted a bit. 
Interesting. Um, yeah. Funny that it kind of needs takes a tragedy to bring people together maybe a little. Yeah. Which is a little sad. But, you know, makes sense that you felt like, even as a foreigner, you felt very belonged to a community. Yeah. Which is interesting. And, I mean, from traveling and being, you know, all over different countries and different times, do you feel like you've kind of, uh, when, when you were traveling, did you feel like... Uh, like, did you have an identity? Like, did you know really what you were, where you were from? And, like, did you associate yourself as kind of just, like, a traveler? Or what What did you associate yourself as? That's, that's a really interesting question, actually. Um, when we left England, uh, my parents basically cut ties with England. Um, and we became expatriates. Um, and I didn't want to call you a vagabond. Uh, but yeah, it's no. basically what you, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't, ha- we were, we were yachties. That was the term. Okay. We were yachties. And uh, there is a huge community of yachties, and we're still good friends with loads of them. And um, it's an amazing community. No matter where you go, you go into a new island, uh, you put the anchor down, and within five minutes, somebody's knocking on your hole saying, hey, we're going to have a barbie, come on over, and da 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 And it's such a nice community of people. Everybody's nice. Everybody's helpful. Everybody just mans together. It's incredible. So okay. once a yachty, always a yachty. Okay. Um, I don't know why this just popped into my head, but the biggest problem of going from a yachty to a landlubber was shoes. I hate shoes. Interesting. Uh, shoes are just like the bane of my existence because for three and a half years, we weren't allowed to wear shoes on the boat and we weren't allowed shoes. Uh, and so going to uh, England, the biggest thing problem was wearing shoes. I hated it. I still hate shoes to this day. And then what's really ironic was my first job. I was a shoes sales lady at Nordstrom. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. You were like, here, just take them. Like, I don't love them, but just take them. That's really funny. That's really funny. Uh, yeah. That's, that, is, that is quite ir- That is probably some of the best irony I've heard uh-huh. in a while. I hate shoes still to this day. I mean, I'm like that with coats. I don't like to wear coats. No. I don't like layers on me. No. You know? So that's interesting. Yeah. I can understand that. So, um... I'm interested in how biology struck you. I mean, I know that well, you're a biology teacher but I, yeah. and chemistry yep. and human systems biology. Mm-hmm. You, you like the sciences, I let's do. just say that. Um, so I know that obviously you had so many lessons along the way, but what brought you to really be a bi- like science? Like what really mm-hmm. was that? Okay, so actually it started a long time ago and I was meant to be a doctor that was in my mind I was going to be a medic I was going to be a pediatric doctor and that was it my uncle was a doctor and I thought he was amazing Um, and after high school I shadowed him for a bit and it was uh, incredible it was absolutely amazing I loved it I spent two weeks with him and I thought it was the most amazing job in the world Um, and then I didn't get into college because I was an uh, um, English citizen, but coming in with only American qualifications, they didn't know how to place me. So uh, they couldn't use my American qualifications against the A-levels, because although I had eight APs, and I had all the SAT2s, and because I had all of the <clears throat> SATs that I was trying to use to say, hey, look, I'm 
I'm capable, take me. They couldn't place me against the English and they couldn't put me against the American international students because I wasn't international. So I think that's why I fell through the crack and I ended up a year in um, kind of a, um, a after you don't make it, you go into a pool and you can then choose from which university has an opening spot. And I ended up in Derby, which was horrendous. Um, <laughs> I didn't see the sunlight because it's in a valley and I didn't see the sunlight for three months. And I need sunlight. I'm from Florida. I don't like being cold and mm, no. Uh, so it was very depressing, very horrible. So I That's actually moved to the University of Exeter and they had a program in biological sciences. I was like, well, that's it. I'll go over there and do biology. I like biology. Sure, why not? So, <clears throat> so that's how I got into biology. And in the meantime, I had spent some time in Ohio um, and my sister-in-law had got me into the pediatrician to shadow them for the day. And I shadowed them and I saw all of these people being giving um, shots. And I thought my phobia of needles was just on myself. It wasn't. Really? And, and so I was freaking out about these needles. And what's really funny is now I teach how to give shots. I was just going to say. Teach. I had such a phobia of needles when I was growing up and until I was probably in my early 20s. You know what cured me? two children and four surgeries you get over it really quickly when you have to have lots of kids <laughs> yeah, i'm sure i'm sure that's, and so that's um, lots of surgeries and needles so um <clears throat> so i um i was meant to be a doctor and uh, that was where i thought i was meant to be but i am so glad that fate said otherwise and that i ended up being a teacher i love what i do um I love learning. I love the science. My mum's a science teacher. My just, I think, is in my blood. And particularly with all of those experiences from the boat, I'm able to see how it applies. Um, uh, I, I like seeing the evolution of man, just looking at the primitives from Tonga and Vanuatu yeah. to American Samoa and then to us in America. You can see the transition. And um, I think all of that combined, all of my experiences allow me to... Um, make these connections into what I teach um, and it makes me a better person because I've got stories I've got things that will make other people interested and my hooks is these experiences because um, I kind of get really invested in them <laughs> as you can see I'm quite passionate about what I do well I'm um, that's good I'd, I'd rather <laughs> that than the opposite um I want you to tell the story of your uh umbilical Oh, the fact that I don't have a belly button. I think that That's that has something to, to do with a little... <laughs> Just a I, lo I love a little uh, HSB story, you know? Okay. So I was born inside out. Um, I had <laughs> literally, quite literally... I was um, born with a condition called gastroschisis, where it's a congenital um, disorder where as your, your, as your eggs uh, get fertilized, the zygote then grows and develops, and then it comes together on two sides and joins in the middle. Well, I didn't join in the middle properly, you know, being the silly woman that I am. Um, and I didn't join in the middle um, by the, just to the side of the umbilical. So I did have an umbilical cord that was connected to my mother's placenta. So I was getting the nutrients in the uterus, but there was a hole which meant that my guts were like, ooh, what's out there? And it decided to leave my body <laughs> and float around in the uh, amniotic sac. So at the time that I was born, 
they did not have ultrasound. So I was a mystery. Like I came out my head, oh, look, lovely baby. And then came out the rest of me and all my guts were like, ah, what happened there? Um, and yeah, uh, I don't fit many molds because most people that have gastroschisis, they are the first pregnancy of a young mother and the, the child is male and that they're early. I was late. I was the second child. My mother was not exactly young, but she wasn't old. Uh, I was the second child and I'm female. So, and I was two weeks late. So it was like, mm, hello, here I am. Oh, so I came into the world being naughty and I still am. <laughs> um, so at three hours old, um, they shoved all my intestines back into me and sewed me up and, um, I was in the hospital for, I think, three months, uh, paralyzed under a light so I didn't move. And then my first dirty diaper, everybody rejoiced and it was like, yay, okay. And then I came home and I've got dents in my leg and in my arm from where I had tubes in me to draining and feeding and whatnot. And um, now, uh, and so I grew up without a belly button because uh, when they shoved everything back in and sewed me up, they had to enlarge the hole where it all came out of to shove it all back in. And then they had to sew it up and it left these tension stitches either side of the main scar. So I had 16 tiny little belly buttons, not one, um, all around this big long line. Um, and uh, as a kid growing up, I was very conscious of it and the fact that I didn't have a belly button. And um, I would always stand in the, the, the um, mirror and go, I want to be a mogul, because I couldn't say model. I want to be a mogul, um, but I can't because my mummy broke me. And that's what I always used to say, that my mummy broke me because she caused me to be split down the middle but she didn't really uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and so then um, but I was always self-conscious about it and I never wanted to wear a two-piece bikini on the beach because all the kids would come up and stare and poke and be like leave me alone um, yeah. uh, and then I had um, and then I had Ella my daughter and um, when you're pregnant, everything moves up and out the way to get, make room for the growing baby. And, uh, well, we grew out the way, but nothing went back afterwards. So I then got in a lot of pain and I couldn't eat, I couldn't move, and I was in a lot of pain. So I went and saw a surgeon and they're like, oh yeah, we can fix this. So um, they tried to go in keyhole, but there was so much scar tissue that they opened me up and they cut out my original scar and they put in, um, they put me back anatomically correct. The problem was that I was never anatomically correct and everything was like, why are we here? And it shut down. Down. So six months later, they went back in and they, um, they, he had gone, done it one side, so she made it in the middle. So now I have a, almost like an arrow. Um, <laughs> and so uh, she went in and she did some massive overhaul of my intestines. Um, and uh, so that was good. I was fine until I had RJ. And then everything got stuck again. And then they had to cut it again. And yeah. And they're gonna do it again. There's the two kids for surgeries. So yeah, yep, it's gonna. There's your needles. So um, gonna be another one. Well, where your, both your kids have dual citizenship for. Oh yeah. For England, I'm I'm just interested as to why, since you kind of seemed uninterested to go back to England. Um, I am uninterested in going back, except for to visit. So my mum and dad moved to New Zealand um, when I came to America. And um, 
Actually, it's funny. My parents wanted me to go back to the UK to go to university because of all of the horrendous violence, but also so I could be close to my family. Well, within one year, my grandparents, my parents, and my sister all left England, and I was there on my own. They all went to New Zealand. Ooh. I was like, oh, okay, then do I smell? What's going on? <laughs> um, and so they all went to New Zealand since my sister had graduated college. And um, she had uh, become... Uh, romantically inclined with a, a gentleman from New Zealand and so she moved down to be with him they didn't get married but effectively a common law wife husband thing um, and so she lived in New Zealand so my parents got into New Zealand citizenship because she was citizen from her relationship and because Samantha is 50% of the offspring my parents got it and um, my aunt at the time my dad's sister she was a neurological nurse and she was highly sought after in New Zealand so they brought her over and because my dad and my aunt were more than 50% of my grandparents uh, offspring they got in so everybody got to New Zealand and I was in uh, England um, and oh I don't know where I was going with this now Ah, oh, there you are. Yeah. Thank you. So um, they all went back to New Zealand and I came to America. Um, but eventually my sister came back to England uh, a few years ago, about three years ago. Um, and my parents are now kind of nomadic. They live kind of in England, kind of yeah, in New Zealand. Yeah, I remember one time you... Uh you were on FaceTime with them. I walk in, you're like, my mom's in Chile right now. <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, I never know where they are half the time. Good um, for them. Yeah. So that's the life. They, they really awesome. are quite nomadic. Um, so uh, because they're New Zealand, my sister's England, and we're Florida, uh, for a while we were meeting up in the middle. And so we would meet in England or Scotland or Ireland or France. And so... Honestly, one of the reasons why I wanted them to get the passport was for the immigration line to be quicker. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I don't I blame know, you. That sounds awful. It's, it's, it's brutal. I, I don't so, blame you. Um, so that was one of the reasons. The other reason is because of British citizenship in the UK, we get free medical. And um, so it's quite useful being my children accident prone as I am. I've passed that on. It would be useful yes. for them to have that. Um, and if they wanted to go to college in the UK, they have that opportunity being citizens. Uh, it would help them. They couldn't without it. Um, and they're actually, they're lords and ladies. Uh, I bought them a square meter of land of a castle in Scotland, which gives them a lordship and a lady titleship. So they're actually Lord RJ Pierman and Lady Ella Pierman. That's really funny. Uh -huh. I love that. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't like, it's just a square. It is a square, a tiny one square meter That's, of them. Do people do that? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's really funny. So they have a title of Lord and Lady Pierman. That's funny. Yeah, that's it's my good children. Birthday present. <laughs> that's really funny. That's really funny. And does yeah. your husband have it too? No. Oh, okay. No, he's American. He can wait in the line. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's really funny. Uh, for me, it's uh, I relate to your boat story. I have a camper. Mm -hmm. that my family stays in it's in Canada right now and wow it's taught me to be so minimalistic yes. and so able and apt to live in a tight space yes and I'm sure that you have that same thing where you said I haven't seen I wasn't away from my parents for more than an hour and I live in such a small house that it's normal to me 
Like, yes. I don't have a problem with it. I can find my privacy in certain ways, but it's really taught me to be super minimalistic and mm-hmm. unmaterialistic yes. because you live with so little. Yes. And I'm sure that that resonates a little bit with you. It does, and it does the opposite with me. Um, okay. When we left England, when I was 11, we sold everything, like everything. I was allowed to carry with me onto the boat two teddies, uh, one I'd had before I was born and one I got in Florida, whose name is Flory. He's a white monkey and one is best teddy. And uh, my grandmother got him for me before I was even born. Uh, That was the only toys I was able to take with me. We sold everything else, all my Lego collection, all my everything. And I miss out on the fact that I don't have any childhood memorabilia or childhood toys or childhood things that I could pass on to my kids. So as a result, I went the other way and I have kept everything of my children. <laughs> my attic is heaving. Uh, Interesting. I, yeah, I don't want them to miss out on that. So we have a memory box for every year that they were in school and whatever they got certificates or if they had nice artwork, we keep it in this memory box. And so they have a memory box for every year of school. And then, yeah. So you feel like it's done the opposite. Yeah. Too. It's actually interesting. Which, but, it, but then there's a part of me that's like, oh, you silly woman, don't do that. Um, you're hoarding, you're keeping all this materialistic stuff. When I think about all the best, the happiest people, and I see that even here in, in school, the happiest people are those that have the least and want the least. The ones that want the most and that can't get the most, they're the most frustrated and the most aggressive and they're the most unhappy because they see what they want and they can't get it. American Samoa. (laughs) And those that have the most, we live in a very affluent area and our students are very, um, they don't want for anything. I don't actually find that they value what they have. And that, it tears me apart when I think that they can get whatever they want whenever they want and it means nothing it means nothing it holds no value so if they lose a hundred dollars well oh well i lost a hundred if i lost a hundred i would cry like if i lost ten dollars i would be really annoyed Um, but they're like "Eh." or if they break their iphone oh i just get a new one no with with what money are you going to do that and it it makes me kind of (sighs) it's actually my favorite word i'll I'll explain this to you you'll appreciate this my favorite word is ineffable Do you know what the word means? No, I would like you to explain it. The word ineffable, I learned, um, I love to read, like, memoirs. Mm -hmm. So I read uh, this account of Prince, the artist. His first wife wrote basically, like, a biography about him and after his death, like a tribute to him. And she used the word ineffable and, and explained it in that ineffable means something that really has no words to explain it. Because words such as, you know, beautiful and extraordinary have lost their meaning. Yes. And I feel like that's similar to what you're explaining in that value has lost its meaning for people that have yes. whatever they can get. And it means so much to me because, again, like I said, I'm very unmaterialistic. So mm-hmm. I love that, you know, the idea that there are no words to explain something so great because we take advantage of the words that we use such as like extraordinary Mm -hmm. think about that and I think that that's interesting that people who have everything that they have and you know iPhone means nothing to them it's a simple replacement that's where 
things like that lose their meaning and lose the special words that we can use to explain something or the special uh, objects or memories in life to be able to explain something. So I think that that's interesting because I agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, If somebody asked me what my prized possessions were, it would be hand-me-downs that have got sentimental value. And they're little tiny trinkets. That would be it. Um, Or something that my children had made. Um, I I couldn't imagine putting my love, my total, like, wow, I got A, and B, just as being a material thing that was just for me that I could then break and then get a replacement. That, that, That doesn't even... I can't even say it without cringing. Yes. Um, but unfortunately, I see that a lot in society, that people become greedy for materialistic things without realizing the consequences it has on them and on others and globally. Because environmentally, like, think about how much we're doing with just a single-use replacement thing. My mum said something to me the other day. She said, yeah, there was a great advert, and it was like, oh, it's just one plastic straw, said four billion people. <laughs> it was like, oh, yeah, when you think about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you think that that's an American thing? or do you think that that's an international thing? Honestly, I think it is very American. I think waste in America is huge. I think we don't do enough to reduce the waste. Um, One of the big things that I noticed, like when we went to New Zealand the first time, when we got into, into McDonald's, yeah, I know, I went into McDonald's. Like I foreign McDonald's do. is They're actually is better. so much better. They yeah. had vegetarian options. They had I've actually heard this from good. multiple people, yeah. and I, I myself have experienced it. International McDonald's is, is where it's at. And, and they actually had, when you return your tray, yes, you return your own tray, you had to sort your trash into recyclables, into biodegradable, and that you had to sort it and everybody did and there was no straws there was and this was 30 odd years ago yeah hmm, that's a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah 30 years ago yeah yeah and but they were well ahead of the game back then yeah and we, we, i just feel like we're a really wasteful society and i think yeah that's interesting that you're able to draw that from other experiences you know countries you've visited i agree i mean i feel like other countries i've been to have the same exact same you know when i went to spain it was very um it was very much like that too it was very much like return your stuff sort your trash no trash on the floor no littering no it was very clean Mm -hmm. i mean i've seen it in other other areas of the world 100 percent and I think it's the people will buy into it. It's not just a dictated thing from from powers that be that says, no, you mustn't. People want to keep their city clean. But I don't feel like that's the case necessarily everywhere, and particularly not here in America. People are like, oh, no, somebody else will do it. Well, why won't you do it? <laughs> you know gum is banned in Singapore? Oh, that's a good thing. So there's no gum on the ground. I love it. It's great. Oh, you hate gum. I hate it. You do hate it. Ugh, I, yeah. I, of course I brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I knew that. <laughs> you hate gum. Yep, it's banned in Singapore. You, it's no a wonderful gum. thing. I think I should get there. Yeah, I, I think you should. Be, you should have gone on your boat. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's a very interesting inference that uh, a little bit of a greedy society. Yeah, I think so. Wasteful. Um, do you think it has something to do with the size of our country? Well, that's a good point. I mean, it's just a... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. It was just a thing I thought of. 
Yeah. You know, maybe the size of the, the you know, I, I feel like there's something that's really special about being able to know the people on the other side of your country. Yeah. Um, and that's why I like, I think England's cool. I mean, there's, you know, islands of it, but I think it's cool that it's, it's very, you know, in its own little mm-hmm. area and same with other countries in Europe and even New Zealand's pretty small, smaller, north and south New Zealand. But I feel like there's something really communal and cool of knowing people on the other side of your country. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, sure, I know, like, one person in California. But, you know, I'm saying that it, I think that there's a cool collectiveness of community that you know, uh, little like, littler countries, you know. So I think that also has something to do with the let's keep it clean or, you know, whatever. But mm-hmm. that was just a idea that I thought of. But... Yeah, I agree. I think yeah. it's very interesting to draw. But it also varies state to state so much. I think America is actually lots of co- each of the state to me feels like a country, and that totally each of those then combines under one flag. Totally, I like little city states. Yeah, I I I've said that before. Actually, I've said each you go to a different state, you got different laws. You can do yeah. something in that law, but i i think that that's but different people different perspectives different attitudes different collection of people i know this is a melting pot but you do have concentrations of different cultures different oh, ideas 100%. in areas and pockets around the country and that does make a huge difference and um yeah i love the fact that it is a melting pot but at the same time uh i feel like in some cases there's more concentrations in one than area than another and that mm, not necessarily always a good thing um particularly if there is angst and animosity amongst the groups that are collected there yes. I, I don't like that i want everybody to be nice and happy i don't care what you are i don't care who you are as long as you're nice that's it if you pick up your trash if you take care of your own space and you don't expect to come into mine and do whatever i'll be, I'll be friends with anyone and uh, unfortunately not everybody sees it that way and it makes nope. me sad yeah that's very yeah. interesting. I, I don't think you should put your own views on somebody else. I really don't. Um, yeah. and, and that's, again, like I said, the narrow-mindedness yeah. that I'm trying to expand with this is, like, seeing different perspectives like you. You exemplified that perfectly with your, you know, I mean, you went to different countries that not just, you know, one, like some people that I'm interviewing, but the boat and the, nomad, the nomadic nature mm-hmm. of your travels is very uh eye-opening <laughs> like you yeah. needed you, you know like you saw more than the average person what's what's the most amazing thing about it is that that was three and a half years of my life but that three and a half years of my life has influenced everything else in my life mm-hmm. three and a half years of my life feel that that when I think back at the time on the boat it feels like an enormous span of time mm-hmm. but it was really only the shortest part of my life I've lived in America now well nearly 21 years and that doesn't seem anywhere near as influential as those three and a half years on the boat well I mean I also would argue yeah that is very crazy I'd also argue that you're very present when you're on that boat oh yeah I feel like um like you had said you know your watch times and the responsibility and the the keen, you know, um, concentration that you needed to live on a boat, I think has something to do with it. And that you were a little disconnected from all the societies. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that has something to do with like a very, um, 
like a traveler experience that it might seem longer because you were so confined in this one little yeah, space maybe. and so present and, and also because I mean, we did so much in that you time. did so much and like you said you learned so much yeah and I'm super big on you know learning from experiences yeah and I love that you know that each you know story had a little lesson to it yeah whether absolutely. you knew it or not yeah oh, at absolutely. the time I'm sure you look back on some stories and you're like oh and oh, yeah. you know instead of in the moment yeah so oh absolutely I, I that's amazing like how do I know about water and why is it so important because we had to make it and how do I know about osmosis because we had to do it and like when you think back on I think that everybody should know it's like no the reason why you know is because of this because of the boat and and I have to remind myself that not everybody experienced it yeah yeah my husband often goes honey that's just you (laughs) (laughs) that's really funny that's really funny no that's just an amandarism you're fine it's okay (laughs) all right so you feel satisfied with your interview okay good I really appreciate no, you're giving fun. me an hour and a half of your time. It was it was actually really fun. I d- you forget. Reminiscing you forget. about yeah. all of the good times. Yeah. yeah, it's beneficial for both parties, I feel like. I, I, I take away stuff and then every um every interview there's like, oh, you know what? I just remembered this. Yeah. And I love that. That, Yay. you know, that's something that I love it. So thank you so much, Ms. Cameron. It's my I learned a lot about you. And um, I hope that you kind of learned a little bit about yourself, too, like connecting things. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.